daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Zhao Yang. China's economic landscape has become a focal point of extensive debate. Amidst the flurry of Western media predictions ranging from stagnation to collapse for the world's second-largest economy, concerns about its future have taken center stage. While some argue that China is at crossroads, others believe that existing and forthcoming policies will pave the way for sustained economic growth. What lies ahead of China's economic future? Is it poised to ascend into the ranks of high-income nations, or could it be stuck in the so-called middle-income trap? We'll cut through the noise and explore the real picture of China's economy. Joining our discussion today, Chen Zhaohe, Chief Investment Officer at Novem Arcade Technologies, John Ross, Senior Fellow with Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies at Renmin University, and Anna Tengen, Senior Fellow at Taihe Institute. Gentlemen, thank you all for joining our program. Um, so, given the recent economic indicators, there's increasing debate about whether China has peaked after decades of remarkable growth. So, uh, Jiahe, let me start with you. What is your assessment of China's current economic status and its future economic trajectory? Well, look, looking at the long term, we're actually pretty. Confident about China's long-term economic growth because you know China has such a large economic growth potential. It has been unleashed in the past four decades uh, and brought China's per capita GDP from just a few hundred dollar to now thirteen thousand uh, dollar per per year uh, for the per capita status. But it, looking into the future, we have enough confidence to believe that this figure will go to somewhere at least uh, around thirty to forty thousand USD uh, per capita. So 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 that actually means a pretty large uh, growth. Growth um, potential for China's economy. If you look into the long term, uh, looking at the current status, it is uh, a very complicated picture. Uh, on one side is that China's consumption, especially the consumption uh, beside the real estate sector, has been growing uh, really, really fast. I mean, if you if you go to the tourism cities like Sanya, which I have been for like two months this summer, you can feel that people are traveling around. You know, hotels are full filled, all these kind of things. And if you look at how many People are traveling in this national holiday. You can feel that you know people. It looks like everyone's just going out for a trip. So, so I mean, the consumption is really picking up. On the other hand, is that we are having an issue with the real estate market. Is that we're trying to get the bubble away from this market. So that means the economic growth is affected slightly because of this real estate uh, cooling down. But that's that's a very temporary thing. If you look at that, I mean, it won't won't last for too long. It may be lasting for、um, just about one to two. Or even three years. Yes, actually, during this、um, eight-day Mid Autumn Festival and National Day holidays, it's estimated that around eight eight hundred million travel trips trips will be made.、Um, and、uh, Ina, let me go to you. Actually, there are other、um, signs that show that、uh, the recovery of growth. For instance, latest data show that profits of China's major industrial enterprises posted strong rebound in August.、Uh, I mean.、Uh, Looking at all these figures,、um, just how sustainable is this trend, in your opinion? Well, I always warn people: do not look at one data point and predict the trend. <clears throat> But let's let's go back over a long period of time. You know, the last forty-five、uh, years, or you go back to two thousand and one, twenty-two years. And you, the major、uh, issue with China is that it plans and executes.、Uh, it doesn't always get it right, But it consistently. Comes back and fixes the problem. Now, let's say you're interested in two companies. One of them, they change their、um, strategies, goals, etc. Every four to eight years,、uh, they're running in debt. In fact, they haven't had a clear year ever.、Uh, they're, they're completely divided.、And、then you go to the other company. The other company has had a solid 45-year、uh, uh, indication of, of profits. Has grown everything.、Uh, Very nicely、uh, dealt with a lot of internal issues within the country, and continues to put planning at the forefront.、Um, I think you know the answer would be pretty simple. And what we're doing is we're comparing、uh, basically、uh, the United States and China. So when people start talking about you know China's on the verge, you know this is an old story. You, you have people in the U.S. who've made a career out of writing books about this. 
this is just pure rhetoric. Uh, this is people who want China f- to fail, and they just, you know, they don't have any real evidence of it. But anytime there's a negative factor, uh, they jump on and say, okay, this is this is the year. Uh, they've been wrong for 22 years, but that's not going to stop them uh, predicting the end. Uh, in, in terms of uh, China's growth, where it's going, I, I think there's um, a real change. Uh, I don't think so. There is a massive change in the way that the economy of the world works. Uh, you know, we, we made the transition from uh, rural to industrial, industrial to information, and now we're going digital. And the digital world has uh, factors of production which go beyond, uh, you know, the traditional ones. You know, it was always, um, you know, labor, capital, and, and energy. This is how you kind of figured uh, things out, and these were the factors that drove uh, growth. But in today's world, uh, although these are still physical factors, knowledge, data, technology, these are the things that are really driving uh, not only growth but productivity. And, um, you know, as the world changes, the dynamics change, people get, it's easy to become confused and to think that things are, you know, falling apart. But the fact is, if you, if you look at the long-term trend of China, uh, you, you really come to only one um, possible conclusion, that it's a probably better or bad than any other economy out there. Yeah, I think you mentioned an important point about uh, the factors that's driving productivity, and I think we'll discuss that further later. But let me ask uh, John, what is your observation of China's economy and um, its future trajectory? Well, it's it's very simple. The, all this talk about the big problems in China's economy are completely um, out of touch with reality. I mean, During the COVID crisis, we went through the uh, worst, one of the worst economic crises since World War II. So every every country has got some problems. Any any economy which tells you at the moment we haven't got any problems at all is just lying. Uh, But the problem is that that the the problems which are in China, of which real estate is one, are much less than in other countries. And this is just shown by the facts. If you let's take the last four years since the beginning of the pandemic so we can cover that whole period. China's economy grew um, two and a half times as fast as the United States during that period. There's a total growth over 19 percent and the U.S. growth just slightly over 7 percent. That's for the total, not per year. Um, and the China's economy grew six times as fast as the Eurozone. So the, all this talk that there's a big problem in China is just um, complete nonsense. I mean, there are some problems. Um, I wouldn't quite agree with you, for example, on the profit figures. There's a re- there's a recovery. It's true for one for the month of August, but if it's still the profits in China are still significantly lower than they were two years ago. If we go back two years ago and taking the same month, the profits were 5.6 trillion won. And this year there's 4.7 trillion won. And that's that's not good. I mean, so there are some problems, but it's it's economic dynamic. It's just much, much faster than that of any other uh, country. So this is all it's all sort of stupid type of talk, which is going on about the great problems in China. The United States um, economy is growing, you know, only less than two and a half times slower than China. That's that's an economy with problems, not China's. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Jiahe, actually we know the concept peak China was first coined by uh, political economist Michael Beckley, who wrote a book arguing that China's relative rise is over and that the US will remain the world's only superpower for the foreseeable future. And that rests upon the idea that certain factors Uh, that once propelled China's growth are now turning into headwinds. So I guess we can just explore these factors individually and uh, starting with demography. So do you anticipate that China's shifting demographics, especially the declining working age population, will push it into slowing economic growth? Well, for economic growth, the thing is that you don't want an aging population and less population. So so that's the thing. I mean, if we have higher uh, growth rate of the population, that's even better for the economy. But that's actually not a reason to worry about economic growth or uh, as an investor myself to stop investing in China. I mean, if we have been doing so in the past so many years that uh, we find some negative factor in the economy, then we stop investing, then we probably uh, would never need to invest at all because you would not 
find any country around the world that does not have one single negative factor contributing to its, its economic growth. And looking at the population growth, the thing is that the better uh, the economic development level is for an economy and the better organized is a society, uh, you will always see a slow uh, population growth. Uh, if, if you look at the world, that's a very interesting thing that the more money that a society makes, the more stable a society is, uh, the less murder rates that a society has, and it has slower population growth rate. Uh, if you look at the African countries, uh, some of some of the very poor African countries, you can see that they have very high population growth rate. But is that a reason for you to invest in that country? So, I mean, the population growth rate of China to slow down is actually a consequence of the stable society that it can get here. You have very little amount of murder rates. People got that pension fund and medical care, and these kind of things. So they start to say, okay, why do I need to have a kid uh, who will bother me for you know decades and uh, where I can have enough with my salary, my pension, my social medical care, all these kind of things. So, so why do I have a kid? And this is actually happening in many mature economies and societies. I mean, America is having this problem as well. Uh, and Japan and South Korea is having this problem very seriously. And some you know European countries are having this as well. But if you, if you go to the countries who have a per capita GDP below uh, 3,000 US, for example, you see the population growth is so rapid there, but do you want to invest in another economy like that? Or do you, do you think about, you know, investment in China and America to retain your wealth? So, so, you know, this is the thing. You see negative signs in almost every economy, but you're not scared because of that. Okay, so Jiahe, I think you're totally correct that higher income households uh, tend to have fewer children, and, and this is a pattern observed in wealthier countries uh, with lower fertility rates. So, Naturally, when a country becomes wealthier, its population ages gradually. But the thing is, in China, uh, due to the one-child policy, we are seeing a much faster demographic transition. So uh, that has led to concerns about whether China may grow old before it grows rich. So to what extent should we be concerned about this unique demographic situation in China? Well, when we have the shifting of the one-child policy in recent years, what we have seen is that the population growth rate is not picking back. So that actually tells us, at least for the last decade, probably the one-child policy is actually not the reason contributing to a slower population growth. I mean, it, it is the main reason if, you, if we look at the period like two or three, even four decades ago, but probably for the last decade, it is not because now the policy is completely removed and you don't have a population goes back. So that's probably because this, you know, the society is really stable. I mean, if you compare the murder rates uh, between China and the US, I think I think that the murder rate in China is about 6% of the United States. So that means you get only 6% uh, possibility of getting killed by someone, you know, um, if you live in China compared with the US. And, and that actually tells you about how stable this society actually is. And that, that's the reason people are having less kids. Um, and, and if you look at the comparison between China's per capita GDP and the population, um, there is one thing is that if we measure the uh, per capita GDP, not from the international dollar, but if we measure it from the purchasing power parity, and you will have a much higher GDP uh, level in China. I mean, um, that would bring the per capita GDP of China from about 13 USD at the current level to about 25 USD. I mean, um, if the, the purchasing power parity means that for every dollar or every yuan or every currency you spend in cities like Shanghai, and if you compare Shanghai with New York, uh, you will buy much more goods in Shanghai. So if you look at the per capita GDP, is that China, uh, Shanghai is currently trading, uh, working at about 20,000 USD, and New York is about 14,000 USD. So you would say, okay, Shanghai is about one seventh of the US, but try to take a taxi in Shanghai, try to you know go to the hotel uh, to, to, to find a room for a night or a go to the restaurant for dinner, you will find that it cost like uh, only about 30 to 40% of the money in Shanghai when compared with New York. So that means uh, per capita the real per capita GDP measured by purchasing power parity in Shanghai is about one third uh, compared with New York. So that means we are not that poor, you know, if, if you look at the purchasing power parity GDP. So that means probably it's not the population growth that is not matching the GDP development level, but we are using the wrong uh, gorge of GDP measurement to 
Con, uh, to mirror how how rich China actually is. Mm-hmm. Okay, so John, um, actually, despite the shrinking population, the working age population, uh, there's also the issue of youth unemployment in China. So, to to what extent do you think we should be worried about this, and how might it impact impact the country's economic and social landscape in the future? Well, I think the question of youth unemployment at the present time is due because the the economy in the short term is growing a little bit below its trend, mm-hmm. and that it's very normal in under that, such circumstances that the least experienced workers, who therefore got the least experience, the least training, etc., which are the young ones, are the last to be employed. That's just not that's not something unique to China. It's something which is you see in many countries. It's the same, the same in Europe, etc. I mean, overall, the general question of population is not going to make a big difference to China. I mean, it's, if you take just to a back of an envelope calculation, I'll show you that. If you take the period since the economic reforms, 1978, the um, ru- the, the growth rate of GDP is roughly nine percent, but the, the growth rate of population is only one percent a year. So it means 8% of the GDP growth was due to things other than population growth. So there's not going to be a big, any major slowdown in China's economy um, in over the long period of time because it's not, prime, it's not really what creates its economic growth, what creates its capital investment and, and its productivity. At the present time, I think that the economy, due to the effect of COVID, has been growing a bit below trend. Um, that's recognised there needs to be domestic um, stimulus in, in the economy. And that's what's caused the problem of um, youth unemployment, which is which is a real one. It's one of the factors in the situation. As the economy speeds up a bit, which is what I would expect it to do, because it's now coming out of the COVID situation and there are moderate stimulus policies by the government, then the measure, the question of youth unemployment will go down. You also have to have some special measures, but this is a particular conjunctural problem. It's not a deep sign of crisis within the economy. It's what I said, every every country has got some problems coming out of COVID. Some countries have got the equivalent of the plague, that is, they're, they're in a state of collapse with debt, etc. Some have got sort of scarlet fever, what I, which means it's a serious disease, but it's treatable. That's why I would think the situation with the US. And some economies have got the, the equivalent of cold and influenza, and China's got cold and influenza at present time. It's got some problems, but it's still growing much, much faster than any other major economy. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Ina, what do you make of the impact of um, demographic factors on China's future economic growth? And since just now you were talking about about pro- productivity, so with China's working age population declining and its overall population peaking, how do you think China can adapt its labor force to sustain economic growth? Well, a- adapting the labor force is simply a, a matter of education and training. <clears throat> the digital economy is quite different from, you know, uh, the uh, the agricultural economy different from the information economy and also uh, the industrial economy. So and that, that's a, a no-brainer. It, the country that trains its workforce to respond to the economic conditions of change will be the winner. And there's no, it's not something I'm making up. It's just a self-truism. <laughs> uh, in in terms of things, I disagree I, I just slightly with John. I think um, a lot of the youth unemployment, uh, especially right now, uh, the high numbers is, is due to COVID. Uh, there's a period of time there when no one was hiring, and uh, these kids got bypassed. Uh, they had a very raw deal. But, you know, there's there's some, a different way of thinking about that in terms of during times of hardship, uh, people develop different perspectives. Now, I'm going to be very interested to see what this generation does. A lot of them returned home. Um, you know, to areas that they come from, they, you know, they graduated from uh, universities, et cetera, and they just went back and they're taking care of grandma and grandpa and the, and the parents and they're, you know, they're keeping a low profile, but they will eventually come back. And the way they think about the world actually could be very healthy uh, for China overall, because they will understand for the, you know, uh, they were the first generation to experience hardship, real hardship. Uh, prior to that, you know, you have to go back many, many years. So uh, they might actually have uh, something, uh, some wisdom uh, to give, uh, not only for their generation, but the generations to follow. Because once you, you know, the problem with the coming middle class is you have lots of choices. And, and unfortunately, more choices don't make you more happy. 
and sometimes you need a little of understanding that you know there are hardships up there, out there, and that um, there are things that matter, and there are better ways of making decisions. In terms of China's overall demographic, I'm uh, less concerned. You know, let's look at the numbers. Uh, in the U.S., uh, less than two percent of people are involved in agriculture, and yet the U.S. produces more food than it can consume. Uh, China has 32% of its uh, workforce in the agriculture area. We know that self-driving cars are going to change the logistics industry and that a lot of people uh, are going to have to change. So there's a tremendous amount of unlocked, uh, uh, I shouldn't say unlocked, of labor that that is going to be available. The difficulty is, and this goes back to training and education, they're not at this point uh, able to join the digital economy. So, you know, if China is able to uh, bring those people productively online uh, in ways that are additive to the uh, country and the economy, it's going to be very well, do very well. And, and you know, I go, I'm going to keep going back to this issue about, uh, you know, the change, uh, the traditional factors of productivity, labor, capital, and energy are, are not going away, but they're becoming... Um, less important than knowledge, data, and technology. And that's really the, the transition uh, that uh, people are, are, are facing. So this idea of less population, let's be clear, we're facing an ecological crisis created by 8 billion people. And yet people run around telling me that we need more people. I, I, I don't understand that. Yeah, <laughs> it, okay. it really doesn't make any sense. How can it be that you... You know, we, we have uh, all these people and it's causing a problem, but you want more. I think that what we need to do is, is focus on having better quality life uh, yeah. for people that's more sustainable. Yeah, interesting point. And, and Jiahe, let's talk about the total factor productivity, which measures how efficiently the resources are being used. Uh, and that is seen as a fundamental driver of economic growth. So when we examine China's success story over the past four decades, how much of its GDP growth was based on increasing inputs, labor, and capital, and how much of it was based on increasing total factor productivity? Yeah, that, that's a very good question. I mean, the, the answer actually differs uh, significantly over the past four decades, as we can see. Um, in the, uh, I think, 1980s and 1990s, uh, most of the increasing of the GDP and the per capita GDP as well uh, actually comes from the increasing of input, you know, energy, uh, you know, human human labor, uh, these kind of things. Also, the uh, damaging of the environments where where we had quite a lot of environmental problem. If if you look at those two decades, uh, and then in the period between the year of 2000 and 2010, the situation became mixed. And if you look at the past decade, and especially this years, uh, we can see that uh, China is actually consuming uh, much less, um, you know, energy, labor, all these kind of things, environment, all these kind of things uh, per per unit of GDP produced. And now we are actually using more technology, uh, more AI programs, uh, you know, all these things. Uh, more uh, automatic factories. So it is actually shifting from uh, relying heavily upon the input of uh, raw materials, uh, resources, labor, time, environment, everything like that, toward uh, an e economy that is now relying more heavily upon things like te technology, new energy, stuff like that. Uh, I mean, one of the best examples, well, uh, one of the best ways that we can feel this change is actually by living in the capital of China, the Beijing, uh, or if you live in Shanghai, that's the same feeling, is that if you if you recall how the uh, environment was back 10 years ago, you, you had folk frog sometimes, you know, the weather can be really bad sometimes. But if you look at now, we can see that the blue sky is really turning for, you know, many days uh, during the year, especially if you go to Shanghai, you can see the blue sky for about 300 days uh, every, every year. So that really means China has been improving its environment really significantly in the past decade. That means for every unit of uh, GDP produced, we are consuming much uh, less and less environment. And that's just the one thing. I mean, another thing is that as we just discussed, the population uh, growth is actually stopped and we're having less population nowadays. Yeah. But if you look uh, at- the, Sorry to uh, interrupt you, but we have to take a very short break and coming back, we'll continue our discussion.
Welcome back. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying, joined by Chen Zhehe, Chief Investment Officer at Novum Market Technologies, John Ross, Senior Fellow with Chongyang Institute of Financial Studies at Renmin University, and Anna Tangen, Senior Fellow at Taihe Institute. Uh, so Zhehe, just now uh, you were talking about the uh, total factor product productivity, and you say that actually it is um, increasing due to uh, modern technologies uh, and, and and clean energy and things like that. But some would say that actually uh, following the global financial crisis in in two thousand and nine, total factor productivity actually dropped due to the large fiscal stimulus. So. Growth maintained its pace, but not by improving efficiency, but through large amounts of credit and state-led investment. What is your observation, and and what impact does that have for China's、um, economy? Well, to 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 talk about this, I think the best、uh, thing, the best data that we can look at is how much money Chinese people are actually making、uh, by working our GDP out, which is the salary. So if If the GDP growth actually comes not from the increasing of efficiency, but comes from more input of you know raw、uh, raw resources, material, energy, damaging the environment, and you know costing labor,、uh, and making people work much longer hours, and you would not see an increasing of the salary. But look at the salary. I mean, the salary has been growing. Very rapidly、uh, for Chinese people in the past. Well, if that's 14 years ever since the global financial crisis or 15 years, so that's a decade and a half. You you have seen that the salary growth has been continuing,、um, you know, year after year.、Uh, the annual growth rate of the salary has been around 60,、uh, sorry, six percent for the whole population, and that differs very significantly,、uh, especially for the low end labor. We have seen that the salary has been increasing very dramatically.、Uh, Back in 2008,、uh, if you employ、uh, a factory worker in some of the you know modern factories in China back then,、uh, it cost you like two or three thousand yuan per month. That's it, and you can find a pretty uh, skilled labor, you know, with that much money. But now with、uh, the same labor, if you go to a factory in China, it cost you at least six to seven thousand yuan, or even more than that. Some skilled labor can ask for the employees for something like ten thousand yuan per month. So that's about four. Four times higher than it was、uh, back,、um, you know, a decade and a half ago.、Mm-hmm. So that actually tells you that efficiency has been increasing because now people are just making much more money away from it. Yes, yes, and and John,、uh, how do you perceive China's potential in in innovation and technology, especially if we consider China's、uh, leadership in electric vehicles and just how the society values education? How much of these sectors、uh, factors do you think is going to translate into total factor productivity and impact the long term economic growth? Well, China's undergoing a transition at the present time. I mean, one of the things, the reasons that China's economy grew so fast and had such a high rate of total factor productivity was because it was able to adapt technologies which were developed in other countries. That's normal for a developing economy. But China's now entering a new stage whereby its technology is actually ahead of number of countries in the world. Not in, not in all sectors. The U.S. still has an overall technological lead, but in some sectors, China's already the technological world leader. That's the case in electrical vehicles. It's the same ca- case in telecommunications.、Um, you take in the consumer sector. It's with TikTok. And we're now going from a situation where there are only, say, one company of China or one or two companies of China which have got that world leading position, to a situation where there are increasing number of companies of China. So this is a real、um, dynamic transition. It's it's very funny. There used to be Ten years ago, there were lots of books written saying that China can't produce brands. You know, it can only assemble things for other people. Now this looks ridiculous. I mean, you know, TikTok is the world's most visited website, for example.、Um, so this is that this is that's a whole normal process of up, upgrading. And so China's making a transition where it's doing what he called in economic terms cost innovation. That means whereby you're producing the same product, but you're producing it more efficiently, cheaper, etc., etc. China's been the world leader in that for a long time. To a situation where what, what's called product innovation, which is where you're producing something which somebody else has never produced before, 
And that's what you're seeing with development of Huawei or what you're seeing with the development of TikTok or what you've already seen in so renewable energy, where China's totally dominant in the world. And, you know, you can see it in the fact, well, well publicized fact this year, China's going to become the world's largest um, motor exporter basically because of its dominance in electrical vehicles. So it just just the facts speak for themselves. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Ina, there has also been speculation in Western media about China potentially entering a balance sheet recession that could drag China into a Japan-style last decade. Is this comparison fair? And do you think there are some notable distinctions between China's current situation and Japan's situation back in the 1990s? Well, yeah, it's a very notable one, and that is the U.S. forced Japan to sign something called the Plaza Accord mm-hmm. in 1986. And today, Japan's economy, in real dollar terms, is worth less today than it was in 1986. It's still a powerhouse economy, but uh, its economics are very weird. You know, 200, 250 percent of debt to uh, GDP. I mean, it's it's um, <clears throat> very odd things. It is really. Um, nothing to do with China. There, you can say, well, they're both Asian. <laughs> okay, uh, they, you know, they both had uh, a large amount of manufacturing and uh, big growth periods. But China is a massive market, and um, you know the way that uh, China is run. Uh, as I said, uh, there's this emphasis on you know planning. Uh, I, I was in the U.S. I was in politics. I can tell you, it just drove me crazy because you just couldn't do any planning. Anytime a new administration came in, uh, all, all that was certain is they were going to upend everything. So all the work that had been done was thrown out the window, and then these new ideas from rank amateurs would come in, uh, or in some cases, ideologues who were absolutely certain that they were right, um, despite the fact that it hadn't worked. I mean, you look at the Republicans. Every time they get in, they push for these tax um uh, <laughs> lower the taxes of the wealthy under the theory that everything's going to trickle down. And then shortly thereafter, we have a recession. <laughs> and, and, you know, you keep repeating it. The definition of, of idiocy or madness is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. Uh, China doesn't do that. If they make a mistake, uh, they acknowledge it, and they try to figure out a, a way to get around it, dealing with the issues. They're not pushing uh, everything off until... Never, never land like the U.S. is with uh, its $31, now $33 trillion uh, in national debt with no sign in the future of doing it. So, yes, the relative positions of China and the U.S. are quite different than the U.S. and Japan was uh, when the U.S. was able to, in effect, uh, novel its, uh, you know, to basically uh, cripple its economy and keep it in its place. And China is very aware of what happened in 86, and they have no intention whatsoever of being caught in that trap. Yeah, I mean, but one thing is that is similar is that China is also a rising power, which the United States feels is going to threat its number one position in the world, perhaps. So, Einar, let's look at the geopolitical environment. I mean, you're right in saying that China has a large market, but I mean, China's access to world market and technology is worsening due to uh, Western countries decoupling or de-risking strategies. Uh, for instance, you have the uh, U.S. Chips Act, along with its efforts to, to build alliance for stricter measures against China. So how do you anticipate this evolving geopolitical environment might impact China's economic growth? It's rather short term. I mean, what you're looking at is you're talking about the developed countries, and they are shying away from, country, uh, from China. But what is China doing? It's uh, starting to, uh, not starting, it's continuing to develop its ties and its trade uh, with the Global South. Why the Global South? Well, well let's think about this. Uh, ASEAN is growing at, you know, second only to China, and some of them are, are ahead of China in terms of uh, growth. Uh, they've been doing well. It's a, an economy that's knitted into uh, China, even if they're, you know, making clothes or whatever. Uh, the zippers, the buttons, and the cloth comes from China. Um, <clears throat> then let's look at the Global South. Well, add them up. And if you take the Central Asian countries and the Global South, it's 160 countries. Well, there's only 200 countries in the world. Um, and guess what? Start adding up their production, 
uh, largest landmass, largest population, largest markets, therefore largest, and resources largest. So China is actually betting on the future. I mean, everyone talks about the Belt and Road as if it was some sort of, uh, you know, <clears throat> yellow brick highway to uh, to Europe, but it wasn't. It was going through all these areas which China thought uh, would develop and would be natural downstream uh, receivers for uh, industries that were no longer profitable in China simply because of the differential in, in wages, you know, and, and that that's going to continue. Um, but let's put this in, into a kind of perspective. Right now, energy in Europe is eight times the price of what it would be in Saudi Arabia, right? Wages uh, in Europe are approximately six to eight times what they are in China. China's wages are about four times more than they would be in Vietnam and other places out there. So what has been the response by the U.S. and Europe? Basically nothing. They're just complaining. Uh, they're not. Uh, there's more asked. They're complaining about inflation, et cetera, et cetera. Are they doing anything to make their economies more competitive? No. China, on the other hand, has been embracing uh, technology. Uh, China has, for the last eight years, um, bought and installed more robots than any other nation on Earth. And they continue to do that. Why? Because robots are more efficient. Uh, it's not labor. You can run them uh, cheaper. You can run them longer. They're more efficient. They're more standardized. So, you know, th this is what I mean by planning. When you have a problem, what are you doing about it? You know, people who are looking long-term in terms of, you know, where should I be? Where are the markets going? Look, I look for a, you know, a company or a country that's actually planning, that has an idea of what it wants to do, that's able to solve problems, instead of those that are continually blaming others for the faults and failures of their economy. Mm -hmm. John, would you agree? And, and how significantly do you think that China's future economic growth will be influenced or determined by the dyna dynamics of China-U.S. relations? Well, I, I, it will be affected to some extent, but I don't think that it's going to be the decisive factor for a simple quantitative reason, which is that the U.S. is in purchasing power parity terms, only about 15% of the world economy and only slightly over 20% at market prices. And that means that 80% of the world economy is outside of the United States. This is completely different to the situation after World War um, Two, where, you know, depending on the estimates you can make, the US was between 35 and 50% of the whole world economy. So above all, China's international regard to things internationally is going to be determined by its relations with the with the 80% of the economy of, of the world, which is outside of the United States. And this is particularly clear with the situation in the global south, where the global south is growing much faster than the advanced countries, no matter how you measure it. If you take the IMF, take the IMF's latest five-year projection, which will be approximately right, not necessarily, in purchasing power parity terms, 70% of the world's economic growth is going to be in the global south. If you measure it at market prices, that's current exchange rates, 55% of the world's growth is going to be in the global south. So strategically, it's going to be China's relationships with the whole of the world economy is going to be much more decisive than its relationships with the United States. doesn't mean that the United States can't create some problems, etc. in the short run, but it's not absolutely decisive. I mean, that's the problem for the United States. It keeps trying to block the relation, the development of China, but it's actually impossible uh, for the United States to do so. And uh, that creates a lot of problems in the world. Okay, so Jiahe, let's take a look at the domestic market, um, because encouraging greater domestic consumption is another important goal for Chinese policymakers. Uh, but we know that Chinese households save over 30% of their disposable income, and uh, that's much higher than many industrialized countries, and it's even higher during the pandemic. So how would, how would you explain the factors contributing to China's high saving rate, and what strategies could be employed to unlock the substantial spending potential of Chinese consumers? 
When we look at the high saving rate of the Chinese people, I mean, there are the modern economists who say, okay, people can't, shouldn't save this much, they should borrow, you know, uh, they should even use the leverage borrow from credit card. And, you know, look at the 2008 global financial crisis, that's where you get the problem mm-hmm. from. I mean, everyone just borrows too much. So so it's actually uh, the Chinese habit to save, you know, if, if you look at the Chinese people all around the world, not only in China, in the United States, you know, in, in many other countries, they save a lot and they educate their children and and they earn quite a, a large amount of money compared with the locals. I mean, if you if you compare the if you look at the Chinese uh, people in the United States, their uh, per capita salary is actually one of the highest among uh, you know the people over there. So so it's actually the Chinese habit to save quite a lot. So I don't really think the decreasing of the saving rate would really mean something good for the economy. Uh, so so it, it's just the habit. You know, people likes to save from time to time, uh, and this saving actually turns into investment in many cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you look at China's equity market, it's actually one of the uh, most popular one in the world. It raised, I think, I think last year actually uh, raised the largest amount of IPO fund even compared with the US or Europe. So that actually means people got the money and they can invest in companies. And these investments actually turns out finally to be a very competitive strength in things like you know new energy uh, battery, new energy vehicle, all these kind of things. And if, if, you, if we talk about the future consumption power is that with the incre- increasing salary that we are currently seeing, uh, currently um, Chinese per capita uh, salary is actually increasing at about uh, four to 5%, I think currently about four to 5%. So people are actually getting more and more money. So even with the same saving rate, they will be able to spend uh, more money in the future. Uh, another thing is that the social security system is now better and better compared with many years ago, not only for citizens in the urban area, but also uh, for the countryside. That is, uh, I actually visited a farmer who, who is in his age of 70 and got a cancer. Uh, and it went to a hospital in Nanjing, which is actually the best uh, hospital in Nanjing city, which has a population of 10,000, uh, 10, 10 million people. Uh, and asking him, uh, because he hasn't got a, you know, he, he's been a farmer for his whole life. He hasn't got an urban social security. So asking him, how much money do you have to pay for, for all your medical care? Because you have no social security at all. And he said, okay, uh, currently I'm paying about a bit less than half of that. So uh, that's because the country has been setting up all these social securities, uh, even for a farmer who hasn't been engaging into the social security system at all. Uh, and that the country still covers about 60% of his medical uh, cost. And if you look at people like me, who, who has been getting a full so- a social security, medical care, these kind of things, then I would probably pay like 10 to 20% of the medical cost. So that means with better and better social security that the country is currently given to its citizens, people will be more inclined to, to spend in the future. I mean, why save? I mean, save, uh, people are saving money for, for the uh, potential things that they might meet in their lives, like, you know, you have to pay some medical bills, stuff like that. But if you know the Social Security will pay your bills, then you're not, uh, you will be much less worried. So you will be able to, con- uh, you know, consume more things in the future. Uh, another uh, rising of the consumption actually comes from the stabilizing, even the declining of the real estate price, because China has been fighting against the real estate bubble in the past few years. And if you look at the property price in cities like Shanghai and Beijing and Shenzhen, we can see that it's gradually decreasing at a you know, pretty stable pace at the moment. Uh, this means that in the future, people will have to spend uh, less money with the property, with a mortgage, stuff like that. So that means uh, they will be able to you know, save more income for their spending. Okay, so Ina, uh, looking into the future, what role do you think Chinese government should play in shaping and supporting the country's future economic growth? Um, like, should it take on a larger role by actively intervening in various sectors and industries to drive development? Or do you think it should adopt a more limited role, allowing the market uh, and private enterprise to lead the way? Well, first off, life looks dynamic, and uh, what's good today is not necessarily good tomorrow. But in terms of responding to international geopolitical pressures, uh, the government has to act. Uh, They have to try to protect uh, the country and find a path forward. That's different uh, internally. Uh, Markets generally make better decisions, except in the case where markets are uncontrolled. Uh, The Chinese government has a policy that you put social uh, 
interests above economic ones. So everything that my colleague was talking about in terms of health care, uh, they could have just said, oh, you know, people can purchase their own health care and, you know, see what happens, let the market decide, et cetera. Uh, what would happen, you'd have large insurers, health insurers, who basically would be taking money out of the system. And rather than providing, uh, you know, affordable health care, you'd get what the U.S. has, where it spends more than anyone else does and doesn't cover uh, a third of its people. So, you know, there is an absolute role for the government to set the societal standards and, um, you know, uh, aspirations. You know, well, what kind of society do you want? That doesn't happen with the market. The market is just a mechanism. But uh, there is a very strong place for the market itself beneath that kind of overall, um, what you call it, guidance uh, that the government is giving. Uh, the, the market is efficient at the lower levels. Uh, and, you, and, you know, the government has to make sure that these monopolies don't, you know, creep up and start taking over things. Uh, and it's not political. It can become political, like, uh, you know, the U.S. in terms of the military-industrial complex. China wants to guard against it. They, they want the government to be for the people, not for a bunch of special interests or oligarchs or, um, you know, monopoly, uh, monopolists. Uh, and that's why you saw a, a lot of moves against companies. And you'll continue to see moves against companies who try to use their market position not to provide services, but simply to tax people uh, for using them. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it's, it's a mixture of both. Uh, in terms of what China has to do going forward, very important is, you know, this whole issue about education and retraining. Uh, there needs to be a different kind of workforce available. And um, they need to, you know, <clears throat> deal with... Uh, the, the U.S.'s intent and desire to uh, contain it, uh, hopefully in creative ways, uh, positive creative ways, rather than just responding to um, U.S. provocations, because the U.S. is counting on that. You know, we, we love it. Uh, we we uh, push you on to, uh, Taiwan, and then there's all, all sorts of uh, military maneuvers, because then we use that as a poster child for why China's the, the bad guy. China just simply said, why are you acting like a child? Um, you know, Taiwan is there. It's 40% of their economy is linked to the mainland. Unless you put a motor on it, they're always going to be there. Why are you trying to do this? It would garner a lot more soft power uh, uh, <clears throat> support, especially among third world countries and things like that. So I think creativity is uh, one of the areas where uh, China is going to have to work a little bit harder in terms of, of thinking of novel ways to get out of these situations. Otherwise, it'll be stuck in this kind of lockstep uh, journey towards uh, perhaps conflict. Okay. So, John, uh, what kind of role do you think the Chinese government should play in the future? For instance, Ina just now mentioned these monopolies, and actually government around the world have come to realize the importance of um, anti-monopoly policies. But how do you think China should um, strike a balance between regulation and innovation and also fairness and efficiency? Well, I think it should be basically doing what's been so successful for more than 40 years, which is the structure of China's economy is very simple. It, it has a dominant state sector, uh, but which doesn't control the whole of the economy. And this, this state sector is very useful, particularly in times of crisis, because you can use increased state investment to over, when the recessionary trends exist, exist in, to increase state investment to keep the economy going forward. Or if the economy is overheating, as sometimes happens, you can cut back the state investment in, uh, in order to prevent the economy go, going in further into overheating. So it's a big regulator in the economy. And on the other hand, it has a very dynamic uh, private uh, sector, which still which now accounts for the majority of employment. Or, and slightly over half of investment, and this is the best possible balance which you can have in the situation. In the situation, so therefore, basically, what China's got to do is maintain mm -hmm. the existing economic structure which it's got. Then, it's, then of course, it has to deal with particular problems because we're getting this new priorities in the situation. I mean, climate change has become a big priority. China's going to go through an enormous transition of changing, basically, from what used to be a coal powered economy in the electricity supply to one on renewable energy that's well underway china's in, installing far more renewable energy than any other country in the world but still it's going to be an enormous transition that's going to take uh, 20 years 
Yeah, uh, and Jiahe, uh, we have limited time left. Um, but I still want to ask you this one last question. If you look at the uh, experience of uh, of Latin American countries like uh, Mexico or Argentina or Asian countries like Malaysia, Indonesia, Thailand, they have all experienced rapid growth, but they failed to graduate into the ranks of high incoming high income countries. So, how do you think China? Do you think China will be able to navigate this middle income trap? Well, I think there are two things you want to look at: the Chinese economy, which is very different from uh, many other uh, economies in the world. The, the, the first one is, as we just uh, been discussing, that China Chinese people like to save. You know, this is a very hardworking uh, people. I mean, the people like to save. People like to educate their children. People like to work really hard. You know, work at night stuff like that. So that means this is a very different country. I mean, people are working so hard here. They're saving so much. They're not consuming everything they have saved, and they invest. They invest Invest in capital uh, factories and invest in themselves with education. So that actually means this country has a much larger possibility to overcome the so-called middle-income trap. And the second thing is that China is a very large economy.、Uh, if you look at economic、uh, theory, is that if you are a small economy, then you are much harder to work out your comparative advantage in the global market. But if you are a large economy like China, it's a huge economy with 1.4 billion population. That means most of your industry. Chain will become、uh, complete and complicated. That means China is easy to develop、uh, competitive industries around the world. So put these reasons together, I don't really find any、uh, reason to think that China might not、uh, might be trapped by this、uh, middle income trap. And that's why, you know, as an investor myself and my company, we have been fully investing in the Chinese equities, and we believe we will actually make quite a lot of money in the future.、Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you,、uh, Chen Jiahe, Chief Investment Officer at Novum Arcade Technologies, John Ross, Senior Fellow with Chongyang Institute of Financial Studies at Renmin University of China, and Einar Tengen, Senior Fellow at Taihe Institute.、Uh, thank you again for being with us, and that's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. To listen to this episode again, or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching "World Today." And for further discussion, you can follow us on X at CGTN Radio. I'm Zhao Ying. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time.